This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the second season of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. We're kicking off this season by going back to basics and discussing targets for blood glucose, pressure and lipids, and specifically how and why these should be individualised to each patient. Later in the episode, we'll be joined by David Matthews, Emeritus Professor at the University of Oxford and President of the EASD, to hear his advice on putting this into practice. As always, do feel free to skip ahead to this expert interview if you're familiar with the topic. You can also find links in the episode notes to all the publications we mentioned in today's episode. In the last 10 years, guidance around HbA1c goals for people with diabetes has shifted from as low as possible to individualised targets. And while historically HbA1c was the overwhelming focus of treatment plans, recent years have also seen a shift in emphasis away from being exclusively on HbA1c to include blood pressure and lipids with the aim of helping to reduce the risk of cardiovascular and microvascular complications. In particular, the 2019 ESC guidelines developed in collaboration with the EESD notes that a combined reduction in HbA1c, systolic blood pressure and lipids can reduce the incidence of lifetime cardiovascular events by as much as 75%. But is lower always better? Current guidance is that patients should receive individualised targets for all three of these parameters. So let's take a deeper dive into the evidence and importance of these targets. Starting with HbA1c. While 20 years ago it had been previously recommended that patients should aim for an HbA1c of 58 millimoles per mole, or 7.5%, the new millennium saw the introduction of more stringent targets of 53 millimoles per mole, or 7% recommended for all patients, and a shift towards even more stringent targets of 6.5% or even 6% in certain patients. However, when stringent glucose control was tested in large studies including ACCORD, ADVANCE, UKPDS and VADT, it was found that while microvascular benefits can be observed, this does not necessarily reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease or mortality, and can in fact increase the risk of severe hypoglycemia. In particular, the ACCORD study, which set a target of below 6.0%, a 22% increase in total mortality was observed in the intensive therapy arm compared to the standard care arm, indicating that such tight control might actually worsen outcomes for some patients. However, the 10-year follow-up of the UKPDS found that the relative risk reductions in myocardial infarction and all-cause death started to emerge over the 10 years, suggesting that stringent glycemic control does help with long-term outcomes, but the benefits are not observed until 7 to 10 years later. So based on these data, we can see that there are benefits and risks to such stringent glycemic control that should be taken into account when assessing patients. As such, the 2018 EASD ADA consensus statement recommends an individualised approach in which targets are set based on patient preferences, risk of adverse effects of treatment including hypoglycemia and other characteristics including comorbidities and frailty. While HbA1c goals have traditionally been the focus of management plans for diabetes, more recently greater focus has been given to multifactorial targets with the aim of further reducing cardiovascular and microvascular risk. Blood pressure is one of these, and presents a risk factor for complications including renal failure and retinopathy. While targets for systolic pressure have typically been set at below 140 mm of mercury, randomised trials have shown mixed evidence for the setting targets below this. 
ADA Standards of Medical Care recommend that an individual with lower risk for cardiovascular disease should aim for below 140, while for those at higher risk, below 130 may be appropriate if it can be attained safely. The 2019 ESC guidelines recommend a target of 130 regardless of risk for all individuals under 65, or between 130 and 120 if well tolerated. In terms of lipids, we know that LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for both microvascular and cardiovascular disease, although again the evidence is mixed in terms of how effective meeting targets is at reducing cardiovascular risk. Suggested targets also vary between cardiovascular risk categories for patients. Notably, the 2019 ESC guidelines include an update to the risk categories in that a person with type 2 diabetes is defined as having a very high cardiovascular risk if they have either established cardiovascular disease, other target organ damage, or at least three major risk factors including smoking, obesity, hypertension and dyslipidemia. Where patients are considered at very high risk, their recommended LDL target would be below 1.4 millimoles per litre and ideally include at least a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol. Those at high risk would have diabetes for more than 10 years without target organ damage, plus any other additional risk factor previously described, and these people would have a suggested target of below 1.8 and again a 50% reduction in LDL levels. The final category of moderate risk includes all other people with diabetes who should aim for an LDL target of below 2.5. This is because, as was frequently pointed out at the announcement of these guidelines in September, there is no such thing as low-risk diabetes. In summary, it's important to consider each individual patient's situation when setting these targets, as all three we've discussed require individualisation to balance the risks and benefits. So how do we make sense of this and put it all into practice? We spoke to EASD President Professor David Matthews to hear his advice on applying this guidance in a clinical setting. Thank you for joining us again, Professor Matthews. So our first question is, recent years have seen a greater emphasis being placed on blood pressure, lipids and other parameters, as well as HbA1c. In your opinion, how should these be prioritised? Should all targets be addressed simultaneously, or should it be more a case of getting one or two under control before moving on to the next? Well, this is an interesting question. And if you're going to individualize targets, and and I think you should, um, this is going to depend on talking to your patient about what is achievable. So some things are achievable very quickly, and some things are not. Some things are achievable easily and cheaply, and other things are not. So when you're looking at multiple targets, uh, there are various things that you might think that you would like to change. So you might like to think about smoking, about blood pressure, about lipids, about glucose, um, about weight. Now, if you think about lipids and say, well, what could we possibly do about hyperlipidemia? The answer is statins, 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 and statins. And, and uh, and this is a simple thing to take, and people should go on to statins, and this we know has got very good outcomes, especially of people at higher risk. And there doesn't seem to be any reason at all why one shouldn't prescribe statins uh, to people with type 2 diabetes, and pretty well everyone should be on those. Of course, there are always reasons why people can't take statins, and some people say they get aches and pains. But in general, uh, they are without side effects, and the outcomes as we know from numerous studies, 
uh, both in people who are at risk and people who've already had established heart disease, that the outcomes are, are good. So uh, an easy win, put people on statins. Then there's a question of uh, a blood pressure lowering, um, and blood pressure lowering is uh, more tricky. Uh, you can find yourself giving a, a fair amount of uh, pharmacotherapy in order to reduce blood pressure, and there's a debate about how low that should be. But in general, you're reckoning that, that you don't want your systolic blood pressure to be much above 130. Uh, getting it below that might give you some, some improvement, probably not. So in general, you should take a threshold of those things and then think about uh, salt consumption as a way of reducing blood pressure and, uh, um, and weight reduction. And uh, indeed, uh, uh, then think in terms of whether one would, would, might use uh, pharmacotherapy. Uh, if you then think about smoking, smoking is so dangerous that of all the things that we might do, uh, smoking is 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 the worst downside to our health. Now, the data show very clearly that uh, one in two people who smoke will die of a smoking-related disease. In other words, it kills 50% of the people who smoke. Um, you can look at it in that direction, or you can say, well, how many years of life does it take off? And the answer is if you're smoking, you lose on average, and the, the data are extremely good, uh, 10 years of life. So um, when we're starting to talk about, you know, little bits of uh, uh, life improvement on treating glucose uh, and, and then allow people to continue to smoke, this is ridiculous. You might just as well give up all of the pharmacotherapy that you're giving if people continue to smoke on the basis that that is the the biggest risk. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's the equivalent, really, of, uh, of, of being crazy about tiny risks um, uh, and saying, well, in cars, why don't we have um, uh, non-breakable windscreens and yet allow people to travel down a motorway without brakes? Um, it would be as crazy as that to say, why don't we fiddle around with changing your blood sugar down to a tiny amount? Um, when we allow you to continue to smoke. And so clinicians need to be really, really clear about the fact that smoking is phenomenally dangerous and that as you stop smoking, so your risks start to drop um, really quite quickly after you give up smoking. And then there's glucose and people forget about the fact that glucose uh, is really dangerous stuff, having a high glucose uh, you get microvascular disease and, and often with all the big trials that are looking at cardiovascular outcomes and so on, people forget that actually what you're trying to do in treating glucose is to treat all those microvascular disease, to stop people getting retinopathy, to stop people tipping over into nephropathy, to protect their peripheral nerves um, and to, to, to really uh, make sure that their quality of life continues. It's no good just concentrating all the time on cardiovascular outcomes. I know that those are easy to measure and that everyone thinks that they're important and the difference between being alive and dead is pretty important. But the fact is that lowering blood glucose to normal uh, and towards normal levels is changing people's lives in terms of their quality of life. And uh, it's expensive to treat retinopathy. It's difficult to detect 
we we really need to to be moving in the direction of saying let's move into preventive medicine so all of those things i think are things that we need to think about uh weight again it's a really good idea for people to lose weight uh and often it's a very good idea for them to lose a considerable amount of weight as you know there are trials now where where people go on to uh, uh, very low calorie diets in order to to lose a lot of weight and uh, a proportion of those people do extremely well and a proportion of those people can keep that weight off and so if you can manage to do that that's good agents that help that of course are especially the GLP-1 uh, agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors and so those are going to be used more and more in terms of addressing that problem but I do think that you in a clinical setting, you do arrive at a point where you think, well, we've tried and tried about hemoglobin A1C and we don't seem to be able to get this down below, I don't know, 7.5 or something. And so then you just say, well, let's just make sure that we're ticking all the other boxes because all of these combined risks are what uh, are going to affect your life. And so, um, you know, in a clinic, if the hemoglobin A1C is 7.5 and we've been trying for a time on that, well, then... Let's think a bit more about whether you could reduce some weight, whether you can reduce your salt intake, whether we can get the blood pressure down um, uh, and uh, whether we can improve your life outlook uh, on the basis of uh, intervening in those areas. Thank you very much. And when considering individualization criteria up front, so when deciding what a suitable HbA1c or lipid target would be, are there any factors that are more pressing than others? For example, should the duration of diabetes be more of a consideration than, say, the presence of comorbidities, or vice versa? Well, you'll know that in in two of the uh, of the last three uh, ESD ADA guidelines, I was the chair of those committees and uh, uh, and the senior author on the papers, and we produced the graphic which simply said that with personalization of medicine you need to take all of these things into account and it and and we produced a sort of graphic that said well you know if you're younger then you probably need to be a bit more stringent because you've got a lot of time left and uh, complications develop over time similarly uh, if you're uh, if you're old and gray and full of sleep then there's no particular reason that for uh, an 85 year old to be running a hemoglobin a1c of of six uh, percent in the old old values as it were um, uh, by insisting that they have injections you know, one would say well you could take um, a, a slightly more lenient view over those things but I think when it finally comes down to targets and comorbidities and so on the the issue is really how much do patients really want uh, in terms of therapy and in terms of concentrating on their health? And people vary, very, very, very widely in this. Some people are absolutely clear that you know any suggestion that their hemoglobin A1C might be outside the normal range is anathema, and they will dedicate themselves to uh, doing something about that. Whereas other people um, say, "Well, I know I shouldn't be putting on weight, but I." Um, I still like my uh, donuts, and um, I'm still going to put sugar in my coffee. And and th- th- those are lifestyle choices that people will make. And I think that the trick in clinical medicine is to duck and weave between all of these things 
Um, but yes, I do think that, that clinicians should be careful about applying a, a, a one number fits all approach to uh, therapeutic uh, targets. Interesting. And finally, do you have any key nugget of advice to our audience on how to implement this guidance? And as you say, ducking and weaving between targets? Yes, I think my general advice is that that whenever you see uh, a, a new patient with diabetes, you must try and find the time to, to talk through with them what their hopes and aspirations are and, and what their enthusiasm is for uh, treating. There are, the, uh, I mean, for instance, if you take the single thing about weight, where a lot of people are worried about weight, then there's a very clear choice about, look, how much are you willing to change your lifestyle in terms of your consumption of calories in order to reduce your weight? Because that's one way that you can do it, and you can do it with that lifestyle change. Or, for example, one could say, well, maybe we're going to put you on to semaglutide or something, and uh, maybe that will help your, your weight. And people will then have a choice to say, do you want to go down the pharmaceutical route or would you like to do the lifestyle route and the lifestyle route there are enthusiasts around who are dedicating their lives to saying no this is so important to me that I really will change my life I really will go on a low calorie diet I really will shed the weight and those people who shed weight can get to a point where it looks as though they don't have diabetes and I say looks as though they don't have diabetes because the fact is that if they go back to their old ways, they will the diabetes will recur. But the, the reality is that you're in a state where your blood sugar is normal. So I think that my advice always is to try and get a feel of which direction people want to go in. If you take people who want to do lifestyle and you give them therapeutics of pharmaceuticals, they get really cross, they get depressed, they say, I've got diabetes, I'm on four different agents, look, my life is falling apart. On the other hand, some people just say, look, they keep on telling me to, to lose weight and do exercise, and I can't do any of those things because my life is just what it is. And those people do need therapies. And so there is a divergence, and that divergence is always something that is uh, uh, explicitly uh, decidable only on the basis of conversation with patients. So make relationships with your patients, um, find out what they want to do, um, and then Go, go with the flow. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Matthews. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, guidance on HbA1c targets has moved from aiming as low as possible to a more tailored approach depending on a patient's individual circumstances and risk factors, as it's been demonstrated that lower isn't always better. Multifactorial targets, including blood pressure and lipids, are now also emphasised to reduce cardiovascular risk and should also be individualised for each patient. If you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the podcast using your favourite app. If you found this episode useful, we'd appreciate you leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or tweeting us at DKI Practice. You can also access our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thank you for joining and we look forward to our next episode on early intensive therapy.